0: Welcome to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. Starting out as a real estate syndicator is no easy task. Finding your first property and then raising money from investors can be daunting and scary. Today's guest is a newer syndicator who bought a 76-unit townhome complex in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex and has done well for his investors and himself. Darren Batchelder tells his story from starting in corporate America all the way to syndicating his first apartment deal. So today we have with us a very nice guy who I heard on another podcast, truthfully. And I was just impressed by just what a gentleman he was and uh, also his knowledge and, uh, What he's endeavoring to do is a uh, senior executive coming out of kind of corporate ranks, getting into the multifamily industry, and which I have an incredible amount of respect for just given the the heavy lifting involved in that. And we're going to hear some great gory details from Darren Batchelder, who is the principal of TZK Properties. Darren, thank you so much for taking your time to join me on Street Smart Success. Absolutely. Roger, I appreciate you having me on. You bet. And uh, we're going to have some fun. And I'm going to, because your, your background is in stuff, I don't really understand. So I'm going to go out on a limb and ask some really Dumb questions, and you can help me along, and and my listeners can learn a thing or two before we get into kind of what you did in the loan brokering business. I just wanted to ask you. I did see on your profile that you went to college in Rhode Island, and I know you're in Dallas now. Are you originally a Northeasterner?
1: Yeah, so I'm I'm originally from Brookfield, Connecticut, and that's how I ended up
0: uh, going to URI, and that's University of Rhode Island. That is. Okay, and and where is Brookfield, by the way?
1: It's um, so there's a there's a lake called Canwood Lake, and it's one of the towns that kind of surrounds uh, Canandaigua Lake. It's on the the west portion of Connecticut, um, just not too far from like Westchester County in New York. Do you still have family there? No, actually, I, when I went to college, um, so my parents divorced. My parent, my father was already living in Florida, and when I went to college. Which was a long time ago. I'm 50 years old, so college was a long time ago. But um, when I went to college, my mom and my younger brother, who was a year and a half younger than me, both moved down to Florida. So I do not have any family left in, up in New England. Um, but I did graduate URI. I stayed in, in Rhode Island for a little bit, and then I was in Manhattan for a little bit. Then I was 14 years in South Florida, and I've been in the Dallas area for about 11 years now. And what took you to Dallas? So, funny little story. Um, you know, I traveled a lot with with Pepsi for for a while. PepsiCo, um, in their international. I started with Price Waterhouse as a CPA, and then I went to work for PepsiCo in their audit division. Did a year domestic, and then a year international. And as I was, you know, I was in my what mid twenties or something like that at that point, and I was doing a month in a country, a week home, month in a country, week home, and um, you know, crashing on somebody's couch in Manhattan, paying them a little bit, and. Uh, I thought I was gonna meet somebody like in Italy, uh, you know, and get married and just move overseas. But instead, I came back, and and, and a high school girlfriend of mine um, had reached out to a friend of mine, and we got reacquainted. And um, that's all she wrote. So she was going back for her ten year high school reunion, and uh, we got reacquainted. And her family moved to Dallas. My family had moved to Florida um, when we got reacquainted. We got married. Um, She lived with us in Florida for a while, and then she always wanted to get back to Dallas.
0: And uh, that's where her family is. And so we we made the move. How would you compare Dallas? And of course, Dallas has changed a lot in 14 years, but how would you compare Dallas to South Florida? And and where were you? I know you have a 954 number, so, so I don't know if you're in Fort Lauderdale, but how would you compare South Florida to Dallas?
1: In what respect? Because there's, you know, there's just the personal living standpoint or, you know, from the real estate and business standpoint?
0: Yeah, good question. I would be more curious, believe it or not, on the personal. Like, what's it like living their day-to-day quality of life? and Sure.
1: So I I lived uh, my wife and I lived in Fort Lauderdale first, and then when we started to have children, um, we moved out to a town called Parkland, which is between Fort Lauderdale and Boca Raton, and it's a little bit inland. You know, really nice area. You know, very nice homes. You know, upscale area, and we started raising our family there. So there was a good school system, whatnot. But what I would say, when we moved to Dallas, uh, you know, she was the one that really wanted to move for her family, and when we moved to Dallas. I think I was the first one to say, you know what? I love it here. And then my kids were second. They were like, I love it here. They were seven and nine. Um, now my son is a sophomore in college. My daughter is a senior in high school. And then my wife came around. And the reason why it took her a little while longer is she's very routine oriented. And so she had her gym and you know her friend group and all of that had to change when you move. But one of the things that we found when we moved from Florida to the Dallas area was that you know the people are just very friendly here. I mean, it it took a little bit. We felt like we were in the twilight zone for the first week or two. Like people were saying, you know, hi to us and being friendly to us. And my wife would go walking in someplace and somebody would open the door for her. And, and you know, it was just things that we didn't really see in South Florida. Everybody, you know, it's very very populated and dense in South Florida, and a lot of people moved from kind of the Northeast from New York down there and. Everybody's kind of, you know, focused on themselves. And here I remember walking into a CVS and some, the person at the counter was like, you know, good morning. And I'm, I look over and I'm like, you don't know me. And, you know, it was just the difference of living in, a, in an area where people are just cordial and friendly to each other. And, and I love it. I love it here.
0: You know, a number of years ago, I took a business trip. Uh, it's about 10 years ago. And uh, it was across the state of Ohio which is actually where I'm from. And, you know, I didn't want to do the trip. It was like three or four days. It wasn't exactly like what you were doing internationally. It wasn't exactly, you know, doing business in Italy, okay? This was like Dayton, Ohio, Cincinnati, Ohio, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the things I I noticed, and I really wasn't looking for this, and again, coming from a a Bay Area perspective, is how incredibly nice and genuine the people were compared to where they are here. And the way you describe the people in South Florida. Florida are exactly the way people are here, very much into themselves. In here as well, and I don't know if it's a function of population density, because you were saying there's a lot of people in South Florida, and I know they just it's it's gotten more and more crowded. And then the same thing, same thing right. is true here. But there's a real passive aggressive vibe here that you don't necessarily pick up on until you go somewhere where people like you were giving the example of the person at CBS. Well, it's genuine. It's not just customer service. It's a weird thing that people are just nicer. I think away from the coasts is really what it boils down to.
1: Yeah. I, I, I completely agree. And and even in South Florida, so we would we would take uh weekend trips every now and then and go across over to the West coast of Florida, over to Naples. And when we go over there, we're like, why are the people so much nicer here? And then we realized that, you know, the people are retiring from the Midwest over on the West coast and and from the Northeast on the East coast. And it's just, you know, two different mentalities, you know, everybody's, you know, fighting for themselves on the East coast and, and, uh, focused there inward and on the, you know, the Midwest are just, just seem to be more outwardly welcoming.
0: Yeah. It's so funny how stereotypes can be come off as true, but yeah, West coast is West coast of Florida. I guess there's always been a lot of folks from, you know, like you said, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, this kind of thing. So first of all, what TZK, what are those initials? Are those kids' names, family names? What's TZK?
1: yeah so um they stand stands for my wife is Tiffany so that's the first letter um Z is is
0: my son Zach and K is for Kayla my daughter oh, my my guessing I'm patting myself on the back you got
1: it right so I looked at it two ways one one I was um so TZK properties is isn't really a, a brand that you know, I've, I've built up it all, um, and that my I have another company that trades loan portfolios. And and when I set that up back in two thousand seven, um, I was looking for one to to use my you know family's name somehow, and then two, I was looking at Google and kind of thinking of kind of the IBM ish name, um, but I wanted something that no like when you put in the Google results, there's no other TZKs really. So that popped up. You know,
0: early you know, on the first page, I didn't want to have a lot of competition for that search well that was uh that was smart. I'm sure nobody's emerged to compete with that name. No, no um, And so when you say brokering loans," and I was reading materials of yours and and so how does that work? So in other words, let's say a bank you know is is carrying paper, they have a loan out for a million bucks. And they're making, they're charging four percent, which is of, let's say, of interest. So it's forty grand. And then another entity, let's say it's a bank, buys that. And I'm, I'm being overly simplistic so that I can understand it. And some of my listeners, is that kind of how it works? And then, if so, does the other buyer, the, the other, you know, bank buys it to, you know, get the accrue the benefits of that cash flow, and then they pay a certain amount to take over that loan? Is that kind of how it works?
1: Yeah, that's, that's exactly how it works. Um, you know, it's typically, you know, when we're brokering loan portfolios, it's, it's a batch of loans. So if you've ever had a loan and all of a sudden you get a letter and it says, you know, don't send your next payment to ABC Bank, send it to XYZ Bank because um, your loan has been sold. It's not because, you know, your loan, they don't want your loan. It's just that it's an investment perspective. So why do banks trade like that. So one bank may be very good at raising deposits, okay? So they, they just have, have good marketing and they a lot of people come in and bring cash, but they're not as good at writing loans, okay? So they have more cash than they have loans. So then they have an option. They can buy securities, okay? And that yields X amount, or they can buy loans, from a third party bank and they they're taking on the credit risk there, but they're gonna get a higher yield. So to simplify your example, let's say a 4% loan, you know, if if the, the originating bank had that on their portfolio, you know, they're getting a 4% coupon. Well, they're gonna sell that for a profit. And the reason why they're selling it is because they want room to do, maybe they're very good at originating loans, but they need the capital, so they have to turn the loans. They can't just hold it or else they they can't continue to write as many new loans. So they sell it for a profit. The bank that's buying it, maybe they pay, you know, a million twenty five thousand, you know, for a million dollar loan. And so they're not going to get a four percent yield. They're going to get something less than that. You know, so maybe they get a 380 yield. And those numbers aren't going to work perfectly, but that's the idea behind it. If they were buying a security, maybe they only get a 350 yield, you know, so Buying loans from another bank, they're going to get more yield than buying a security, but they're going to get less yield than if they originated the loan themselves.
0: That was so simply and therefore eloquently put that even I understood it. And then are these, Darren, are these like banks that everybody's heard of? Or, you know, I mean, are these Wells Fargo Bank of America or these more localized regional banks? I mean, household names.
1: Yeah. So I started... When I started in the business, I started 2002 to 2006. I was, uh, I actually worked for a top 20 worldwide bank. It was a Dutch bank uh, called AB and Amro. And so they were originating the loans. And so I had an inventory of loans and I was a salesperson on a trading desk and I would go find other banks to buy those loans, uh, residential loans and multifamily loans. Then I left the bank and started my own company in 2007. When I did that i had to go find loans to sell and then buyers buying banks to buy and um to answer your question yes um you would know uh, a lot of the names that i've i've sold you know brokered loans for and then a lot of the names you wouldn't know so i've worked with household names and i've also worked with regional community banks that you know unless you're in that local market you wouldn't know
0: uh and again very elementary question I'm thinking to myself why do they need a broker? Why does said institution need a broker to identify another broker or is it just because they don't know who's in the market at any given point in time there's intellectual property in the process that they don't know uh, negotiation or what's the value that the broker provides in that scenario?
1: Um, good question. So when I started the company in 2007, you know, when you, when you ask people when was the Great Recession, most people say you know 2008, 2009. Um, but I was in that business and I saw what was happening. And for me, you know, I, I told my wife, you know, this is going to end badly in 2006. I said that because you know housing prices were going up 15 percent a year in in the good in the appreciating markets. We're going up 15 percent a year, but incomes were only going up three percent. You know, and then. At some point, something's got to give, and then I you know our biggest competitors when I was at Ab and Amro were Countrywide and Washington Mutual, uh, Wells Fargo, and selling large loan p- portfolios and and um, I started to see Countrywide and Washington Mutual started to to write a lot of what people have heard about no doc you know loans, stated income loans and because of that, Amro was not willing to go down the credit spectrum and do that. So we started to lose market share and um you know we all know how that turned out. Those loans, a lot of those loans went bad. But what happened in that in that crash was that when I started in 2007 with my own company, you know banks all of a sudden had a need to raise capital, right? And so the private equity firms that typically buy troubled debt you know either troubled debt scratch and dent they would call it they're bidding like 30 40 cents on the dollar so if you have a you know a million dollar loan you know they're bidding 300 grand and the banks don't want to sell and take that huge loss but they need to raise capital so the position that i took was because all of my relationships that I built at AB and AMRO were with other bank institutions that were buying high credit quality loans. My pitch to these banks that needed to raise capital was, hey, look, I can I can sell your loans and get you par, which would mean you wouldn't get a profit, but you wouldn't have a loss either. But you have to sell your better loans. You have to sell your high credit quality performing loans. And so for, for that, you know, I differentiated myself from the broker community and these banks typically weren't in the need to sell those types of loans. But, you know, all of a sudden they're in the middle of, a, you know, the great recession and all the banks are in
0: trouble and they need to raise capital. And that was one way to do it. Wow. Are you saying you saw that coming and that's why you went out on your own to leverage against that opportunity?
1: Um, not necessarily. So when I was at Amy Amro, I you know I think the man upstairs. I I did very well uh, financially, and and uh, you know my house, my wife wanted the bigger house, and and I I told her, look, at some point this is gonna this is gonna end, and when it does, I don't want to ever work for anybody again. I want to start my own business, but I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know what I was gonna do. I just knew I was gonna start my own business. I didn't want to ever go back to corporate. And uh, so I needed to put a lot of money aside. And so that's what I did is I put a lot of money aside. And um, you know, when, when I left the bank, I actually took like six months and got my handicap down. I played a lot of golf <laughs> and, and I was trying to figure out what to do. I was, I was looking at some um, commercial real estate deals, but I couldn't find anything that made sense to me. And then I just called up some of my old customers, banking customers, and and said, you know, hey, if I was to start up a one man shop, would you do business with me? And and I kind of thought all these banks were going to say, hey, Darren, man, I like working with you when you were under the ABN AMRO umbrella, with a big corporate umbrella, but you know, I'm I'm not comfortable working with you, you know, as a one man shop. But instead, what I heard them say was, hey, Darren, look, if you could find me quality loans, I'd I'd buy from you all day long. The counterparty risk is not with you. It's with the bank that's selling us the loans. So the way the transaction would work is the selling bank would have a, an agreement with the buying bank and then TZK would just get a broker fee. So it wasn't like TZK was buying the loans and then reselling them. It was it was just a broker fee. And so they didn't really have any any risk with us. They had all the ability to do all the due diligence they wanted to. And so I started dialing for dollars um, and leveraged some of the relationships I had.
0: So part of the value that you provided is being able to determine what a quality loan was to mitigate the risk on the part of the entity that was buying the loans. Is that part of it too? Or maybe they didn't have that ability to do it, but because of your knowledge, you did?
1: No, I think, I think it's just, okay, th- some of these banks were not in the business of selling loans on a regular basis, but they found themselves in a need to raise capital. And I presented a solution where, hey, I have buyers, I have relationships with with other banks that will buy where you don't have to take a loss. So that was attractive to them. So then, you know, with a few phone calls, I call up and, you know, I tell the, the buying relationships I have, hey, look, this is the bank that is looking to sell this, you know, they've they've um, positioned their their loans look like this you know you'd have the ability to do, do due diligence on them and um, you know do you have interest and this is the price they're looking for and you know here's the coupon so here's your yield and is that attractive and then I qualify which which banks have interest and the ones that I have interest then I would you know bring back to a selling institution. But if, it, you know, I was
0: basically weeding out the ones that had interest and didn't. What was the most challenging part of doing that work?
1: Well, I'll answer that a little different way. Um, some people have asked, what was the hardest part of starting your business?
0: And the, my
1: answer always surprises people because I said, you know, signing the lease to the office space. People are like, what? Like, why? Why is that? Difficult. Was it a long term lease? Was it really expensive? What, what's the deal? Being in corporate for years and years and years, like the minute I signed that lease, that meant I'm in business. I have to tell my colleagues, you know, from other businesses that I worked for, I have to tell my friends and family, I'm in business. And there's that fear of failure, you know? Um, so that was the hardest part. Now, once I got into the office and I started dialing for dollars, what I realized was look, all the profit comes to the the business instead of getting paid, you know, as a salesperson, you get paid whatever your commission rate is, right? Um, So the bulk of the profits go to the business you're working for and you get a commission. Well, all of a sudden now I found myself, I'm like,
0: wow, all the profits are coming to the business. This is great. Yeah, that's kind of refreshing when that happens. Uh, I don't want to go too into it because I'm I'm more interested in you, but yeah, I, I started my own business many years ago, you know, and it's still, I'm still part of it in the advertising business, but yeah, I know, I hear you loud and clear. And I know that you're syndicating multifamily now. Do you still do any loan brokering now? So I still
1: have the business, um, but I had to pivot a number of years back. So, you know, from like 2007 to probably 2011, 12, um, that business model worked because a lot of banks were deleveraging their balance sheet. But then, you know, the banks started to become more healthy and didn't have the need to sell on a regular basis. And what I found was, you know, every time I was representing, you know, a large institution, their loans look a certain way, right? So then we build up a buyer base for those loans and then maybe we sell for them for two or three years and then they say, hey, Darren, we don't need to sell anymore. And now I got to find another seller and their loans look different. So the buying group is different. So it was something that I realized wasn't as as uh, scalable. So I had to pivot. And what I did was back in, I don't know, 2011, 2012, I had a bank that bought a lot of loans from me and they had a correspondent program on the residential side and and I helped them grow that program. And um, that took probably a year and a half, two years of work to build that up. And then since then, it's been a Nice kind of revenue cash flow machine coming back, so um, that's afforded me the time to to go after
0: the real estate side. I see. Did the brokerage business have employees at at any point in time?
1: Um, so I started it with just myself. At various times, I, I had anywhere between one and three salespeople. Um, you know, at different times, and
0: and now it's just myself. So super, super clean business. And so why did you get into syndication? Well, you know, before I asked that question, had you done other real estate investing on your own just with your own capital, investing with other people, or on your own, or things like that? I had,
1: other than investing in the stock market, you know, ETFs, stocks, you know, funds, whatever, I had not done any real estate investing to d- date, and you know, until I got involved um, about three years ago. Uh, three years ago, I decided, you know what, I've been wanting to get into real estate. I'm just going to bite the bullet. I went out and bought a new construction duplex. My wife and I did, and um, that was October 2017. It was going to take a year to build, and um, once I signed the contract on that, I realized, you know, I'm going to make a little money on this, but it's You know, it's going to take me forever to build any real wealth doing duplexes and fourplexes. And so I wanted to go bigger. I found a group that specialized in multifamily and I mentorship group and I joined that group and I met a ton of people that were doing it. And once, once I surrounded myself with those people, then I was like, if they can do it, I can do it. Right. And, and so I just asked them how, you know, how'd you do it? And I just kind of followed their recipe.
0: That's really impressive. (laughs) That's <laughs> really impressive, especially a little bit later in life. You know, I wouldn't say you're old, even even at fifty. Um, but you know, to have started that, like let's say at, at forty seven, and and to go about it that way is impressive. So uh, here's the proverbial question that everybody asks, and it's, "What was your first deal?"
1: My first deal was a so I did the duplex, and then my first deal, I joined the mentorship group December two thousand seventeen, and then it took me about nine months to land my first lead sponsor deal. And, um, and then it took us a few months to close it. So maybe a year, um, you know, soup to nuts. That was a 76 unit townhome community in, uh, about 15, 20 minutes South of Fort Worth and Crowley. So I went from duplex to 76 units.
0: So 76 units, you know, based on some things I've been kind of listening to and learning is that is that kind of a, like a sweet spot where it's bigger than a mon pa that's just doing, like you're saying, duplexes, fourplexes, and underneath the radar of institutional money? And so you were up against less competition, or how, how did that deal coalesce?
1: Yeah. So, w- what was I focused on? So, in the group that I was in, it, it's a, they're focused on what I would call large scale multifamily um, workforce housing, kind of BC properties. But, the the idea is, okay, if you want to scale, then you wanna leverage other people's time. And so if really to have afford a full-time leasing person and a full-time maintenance person, you really need the kind of the cutoff from what everybody is, has shared with me was was you really need 60 units or greater. Okay. And if you purchase a property that has sixty units or greater, then most likely you can have a full-time leasing person and a full-time maintenance person on the property. So that was attractive to me. Now, when you get 100 units and above, a lot of seasoned syndicators look for those deals. So I purposely looked for deals between 60 and 100 units because I wanted to have the the full-time staff, but I also didn't want to be competing against other syndicators that had three, four, five,
0: six deals. I heard uh, the other day I was listening to uh, another podcast, and and they were saying in the Dallas Metro, the big multifamily two hundred to four hundred ish units. they were saying that you know there's typically twenty offers right now against those kind of buildings properties.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I would say even in the even in the sixty up is you know you probably have 10, 15 offers on it. On every deal, and you know, pro- when you're talking about 15 offers, you know, probably I'm gonna guess on most deals that I've put offers in on, there's probably four or five that are from people that I know in the group, you know, in the same mentorship group, and that you know we're kind of com- we're friends, but we're competing to get the same deals. And um, you know, the way it typically works is 15, say there's 15 offers, and then they're gonna they're gonna limit the broker's gonna I'll look at the offers and. Come back with five, six, seven people and say, "Okay, you guys are invested in final," and all that means is, "Okay, go sharpen your pencil and come back with a higher price." And then they're going to take the, you know, typically the top three are going to be pretty close, maybe within fifty or a hundred grand of each other, and the broker and the, you know, uh, the seller are going to sit down and. Seller so is going to say, "Who should I go with?" And you know, you have to think about that conversation. Why are they going to pick you? You know, you have to make it compelling, and you know, so you can do that in a few different ways. One is you can partner with somebody that has a ton of experience. So if you're a first timer and you're looking for your first deal, well, when they when they have that conversation, you know, I partnered with a guy that I met in the group. He's from Chicago. His name is Raj Gupta. Um, he's got a ton of experience, ton of real estate, you know investing experience, uh, buying hundred plus unit properties, rehabbing them, selling them for profit. and um so I brought him on as a partner and that helped me win the
0: deal. I see those sixty seventy six units did they uh, cash flow when when you took it over? Yeah. What was prior to? I'm assuming there was a value add component to it, but even prior to that, what was I guess on the front end? Do you recall what the cash on cash was?
1: I mean, we bought it at a six cap. um,
0: So you know, if you bought it with no leverage, you were going to get a you know six percent return. Got it. So you got a. And how much? How much lifting did you have to do uh, on the value add piece of it? Because that sounds like a a great deal. Um, You know, it was.
1: Pretty much, it was. This property was 1982 or 1983 construction. Town- all townhomes. It was all original. So the seller was a California family who owned it for over 10 years. They, you know, their whole goal was just keep it full and cash flow, and they were in at a very low basis. You know, so they they were not trying to keep up with market rents. So for me, when I went and looked at other properties in the area, I was like. You know, look, if we put money into this property, you know, we had to paint the exterior, put in all new fencing, and then start rehabbing the interiors. The interiors were, you know, original interiors from 1980s. Well, we can get a lot more rent. And so we did uh, that property. I think when we took it over, the rent roll was like 60, 61,000. And now we're, you know, at like
0: 77, 78,000. This is really inexpensive because you're talking about basically, you're talking a month?
1: No, 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 no. Oh, yeah. A month for the entire property, not,
0: you know. No, no, no. I I understand. But it's 76 units. It's like, it's just just a hairbreadth over a thousand bucks a month per unit. Yep. Got it. Was it C-class? Is it C-class?
1: Yeah, I would say it was, you know, it was kind of like a C to C-plus and, you know, we wanted to make it C-plus, B-minus and and
0: you know it's probably in that in that area correct me if i'm wrong but i'm assuming you have you know third party management that manages correct even though you've got people on the ground on the property
1: so the third party property management they are the ones that hire the leasing manager and the maintenance person so they're they're on the property management's payroll but their payroll is paid out of the cash flow of the property so if that makes sense, what happens when you, ha- when you hire a third-party property management company is the property management company gets a fee for you know, managing the property. And then whatever their payroll is for the employees that are on
0: your property, you also reimburse them for their payroll. I didn't know that. And is that standard for multifamily of that size or greater that the people on site are employed by the third party property manager or are there exceptions to that or is that pretty much typically how it works?
1: That's the typical scenario for large scale
0: multifamily. In all in all the classes A, B, C. Oh, okay. And that makes a ton of sense. And so I guess my question is, I, I guess, theoretically, then, as the principal GP, I mean, there then in my mind, there should be, unless the management company, you know, stubs their toe and you have an issue and you need, you need to change things. If that's not the case, it sounds like it's pretty much, you, you don't have to do a heck of a lot, but collect checks, correct?
1: Theoretically, <laughs> yeah, I was, yes. Um, but the syndicator is basically the what you would call the asset manager. So, you know, you have the property management company, but then the asset manager, the lead syndicators are going to manage the property management company, make sure that they're, you know, doing what you need, what needs to be done on the property. Their responsibilities also are to um, every month, you know, an email goes out to all the investors in the deal letting them know how things are going at the property and also providing financials and so that's the responsibility of the lead sponsor the general partner and the the uh, asset manager so that is part of it and in the beginning you know depending on what the capex was the capital expenditures built in you know what how much you raised for to renovate the property the external renovation you want to try to do as quick as possible. And, you know, you're responsible as the asset manager, as the lead sponsor uh, for overseeing that process. And so, you know, you may hire a third party uh, general contractor that is not associated with the property management company, or you might take a referral from the property management company. Um, but then you're responsible for negotiating that, you know, price and also overseeing that rehab. Make sure that you know, it's, it's of quality. And then, you know, once the exterior is complete, that brings in a night, you know, a better tenant base because people drive by and they're like, oh, it's got a new paint job. There's new fencing. That property looks much nicer than it used to be. They must have new ownership. Let me go check it out. So it draws in a higher uh, tenant profile. Then in terms of renovating the interior units, you do that as people leave. So everybody's annual lease, you don't kick them out to renovate the property. You you know wait for the lease to run out, and then you know you provide them a renewal rate, and if they choose to renew, then they renew and they stay in their unit and it's not upgraded. If they choose to leave, when they leave, that's when you bring in the team to upgrade the interior, and then you increase
0: the rent based on having a nicer interior. So I, I may have missed a beat just because I was like writing down what you're saying. But to take a half a step back, and again, you already say this, so you might be thinking, what, what, isn't this guy listening, um, is this. So you're saying that it's up to you to do the exterior improvements you know, when you buy the property and not, not the third-party management company, but then they, they handle the interiors. Is that the gist of what you were saying? So
1: the general partners are responsible for everything, right? So they've purchased the deal and they've presented you know, forecasted returns to investors. And presented a business plan. Hey, this is what we're going to do. We're going to paint the property. We're going to put new fencing up. That's going to attract a higher quality tenant. Then we're going to put, you know, X amount on the, in on the interior units. And we think we're going to be able to get, you know, an extra hundred dollars in rent per month uh, by having the upgraded unit. And how do we know that? Well, we're, we look at other properties down the road and they're getting it already. And so, you know, that's kind of the business plan and we're ultimately responsible. Okay. The property management company is their responsibility is, you know, that one that they've got to hire the employees. They oversee the employees. They do all the accounting. They pay all the invoices and they collect all the money. Okay. They also, depending on the property management company, they also will oversee any, all the interior renovations. So, you know the maintenance guy on staff. Maybe the maintenance guy is, you know, changing out the ceiling fans and the faucets and the knobs on the on the uh, cabinets. But in terms of painting, maybe you know we we end up the third party property management company brings in a third party to come in and you know paint the walls and and um, and then hires a cleaning company to come in and clean it at the end. You know that type of thing.
0: But you're saying they don't deal with the the exterior of the building.
1: They could, if you you know you wanted to. Many times, uh, you know, some syndicators will use the you know referral from the property management company, and some will just go out and find
0: their own general contractor, and and that's what I did. Huh. That's curious to me. Why, why wouldn't one just say, you know, a syndicator, a GP sponsor, why wouldn't they have the, the property management company handle the exterior? in in addition to the interior, like why would there be that bifurcation is the wrong word, but you know what I mean?
1: Sure. It's uh you know, the exterior could be a lot of money, you know, you raise a lot of money. And, and so what's the property management company core competency? Their core competency is collecting money, doing the accounting for the property, right? So is that who you want to do the, the exterior work or do you want to hire you know, a contractor that specializes in that? So that's the question you have, to,
0: you have to answer. I got it. Okay. Well, I mean, thanks for clarifying. And so how many investors did you have in that, in that property?
1: So the, uh, that property, we had 44 limited partners.
0: We raised it like two and a half million. That's a heck of a lot for a two million dollar raise. So what, what? What did you have as a minimum?
1: We had a fifty thousand minimum, and we had investors from fifty thousand to two hundred thousand, and we had a few that you know came and said, "Hey, look, Darren, I want to get in the deal, but you know, can I get in for thirty or 35? And you know, we let a few people in below the minimum.
0: I see. Yeah, because otherwise the math. Yeah. Okay, and then what was the preferred return and uh at the beginning and has it been hit consistently
1: so you know the total irr was was somewhere in the you know the low teens maybe 12 13% 13 14% somewhere in there i don't have the numbers in front of me you know cash on cash of say 8% and then um it's kind of going up as as over a 5 year business plan so first year uh, we paid out 6% distributions second year covid has happened and we have unfortunately we have some slow pay and non pay customers out there but you know we're i think we're in an extremely attractive position going forward especially with the the new stimulus package um and having 25 billion of of rent assistance in there you know, when I when I got involved with multifamily, we, w- we would debate with other syndicators, not debate, but talk about what do we think the next downturn will look like? And so we thought, all right, well, people are going to look to save money in the next recession. The bottom 20% in the A properties will probably flow down to the B properties and twenty below 20% will flow down from B to C. What actually happened though for COVID was that A's and B's, like the the tenant profile was such that people could work from home, you know, so a lot of those people did not lose their job. In addition to that, you know, A tenants and B tenants have you know, more savings, so they're able to you know, pay the rent. When you get into the C class, a lot of the tenants, you know, they're, they're, paying, they're month to month, and they don't have a lot of savings. And so a lot of them work in retail or restaurants or hospitality, and so they've been negatively impacted. So, you know, we're working with all of our tenants and to, you know, try to get them rent assistance and help them along the way. And, uh, you know, we'll see going forward. But I never, ever, ever thought that we would be in a position where, you know, the government mandates that you can't, you know, you can't evict for non-payment of of rent. And, you know, that's what we found ourselves in for nine months of of 2020. And with that, we still are cash flow positive every month so that tells me that multifamily is extremely resist you know resilient and um, you know people look to pay their rent and you know first food and then your rent
0: have you determined to continue distributions or are you just holding tight to weather the storm for now
1: so we're in a very strong cash position we we probably didn't use half of our rehab money so we could make distributions but you know we're we're not making distributions cuz we want to make sure that we get through through this uh covid time period you know i just think it's the i'm a conservative guy and you know i also know you know people have asked me from my personal network not kind of multifamily investors but from my personal network that invest in the deal hey Darren man i know that you've been in the multifamily loan trading space for years and years and years you know what's the risk in these types of deals and for me I, I didn't see it from owning real estate but I saw it from trading loans was that the people that got in trouble were really ones that had their loan come due in a terrible economy so you know if you have a balloon in the middle of a bad economy you have no leverage you know the bank says okay well your cash flow was x when you bought it and it was worth 10 million but now your cash flow is down so you know we're we're going to value it at Eight million. So you got to bring $2 million of new equity to the table. Well, I don't want to be in that position. Right. So I'm like, well, just don't get into a cash crunch. So, you know, in, in my mind, now's the time to, you know, hoard cash and just, just in case. And so I, I think that that's prudent for all the
0: investors in the deal. So you bring up something really fascinating. You know, you've been kicking around this thing for a couple few years, and your background is conducive to it, and uh, you're a smart guy. If you, and I'm sure you have some familiarity with the other, obviously, the other syndicators out there, uh, whether it's, you know, guys that are in the group that you're in or just at large, you know, because there's so many of them. There's, a, a, you know, there's Ashcroft that's doing a ton of stuff, in Dallas-Fort Worth, for example. Do you think that some of these companies kind of are at risk in terms of the way their uh, financing is structured?
1: Well, you brought up Ashcroft. I mean, I'm in a pass. I'm a passive in like nine other deals too, and I'm a GP in two other deals. So I'm invested in a lot of deals. I'm invested in one of Ashcroft's deals. They they're focused on long term fixed rate financing, so they, I don't have a concern um, on them specifically. There are syndicators that. Uh, We'll use what we call bridge, uh, bridge loans, and bridge loans are typically structured as three years, you know, with two one-year extensions, and so you know the loan balloons after three years, and and, you know if you're in a decent economy, you're going to get the two-year extensions, you know, almost automatically. But what happens is when the economy goes south, all of a sudden you're you come up on your third year. And you know, if you're not in a position where, you know, you've completed the value add and your, you know, NOI has improved to the point of your business plan, well, you could get stuck where, you know, the, the bridge lender is like, look, I'm not going to give you the extension. So if if that's the case, because they have a lot of, you know, little nitpicky things in the, in the loan agreements um, that can offer them the ability to do that. Well, at that case... You're, you're, you've lost all your leverage. People in a bad economy, lenders are focused on all their tr- troubled debt and they're not really focused on writing a lot of new debt. So you know the new debt has to be squeaky, squeaky clean. So they're going to reduce the loan to values. They're going to make it very attractive for the bank because they know the borrower
0: just doesn't have a lot of choices. Very, very interesting. Well, it could be some, you know, who knows? It's just a matter of when the economy turns south. I don't need need. I mean, it's
1: that's all a timing thing. So, I mean, bridge debt can be great debt if you can buy the property, improve the property, and then either refinance into longer term debt or sell the property in that three-year time period. If you can accomplish that, bridge debt is great because the prepayment penalties are significantly lower than, than agency financing. But you could also get stuck, where all of a sudden you're in, you're in year two and a half, and all of a sudden the economy goes south, and maybe we're in a year or two recession, and you, know, you don't have a lot of options, and, and now, you're, now you're stuck.
0: You know, I'm gonna go back a quick second. You're a passive uh, investor in nine other deals, you said. And are those all multifamily, did you say? All multifamily. Actually, this year I invested in one retail development deal, but
1: they're, all the all the others are pure multifamily.
0: Have you invested in those over like the last two to three years, or have you had those longer?
1: So, no. So I, you know, when I told you I bought the duplex October 2017, I joined the mentorship group in December of 2017, January or f- February. I think February 2018 was my first passive deal, and then I you know, I just pulled a lot of money out of the stock market and started to invest in one or two deals a month. And, um, I feel like it's a better place to park my capital. You know, I don't, when the, when the stock market crashed and not, you know, crash, crash, but I mean, it went down what 30, 40% in, in March over a two week time period, it's come roaring back. Right. Um, but for that two week time period, a lot of people were, we're scared man they're you know they're a lot of the retirement money is in the stock market i wasn't nervous at all like i don't have these these multifamily deals they don't have ticker symbols so you know i didn't all of a sudden look at my valuations drop by 30 40% overnight you know it, instead you know as a passive my viewpoint is look just don't lose the property just you know stay cash flow positive don't lose the property don't run out of cash because that's when you get in trouble and the bank takes it over and then everybody loses their equity. But if you can manage through that you know, troubled time and still be cash flow positive and still make the mortgage payments, I'm a firm believer that I don't know what's going to happen in six months or a year or two years, but five, 10 years from now, I believe that rents are going to be higher. Inflation is going to be higher. Incomes are going to be higher. Real estate price is going to be higher. So- and, and, you know, I'm in, I'm investing in Texas and I just see the population boom. You know, people are moving in Texas from all over. To the
0: country of Texas. So are, are those nine deals with nine different sponsors? They are. And then have you had any of them reduce distributions? And it's still a pretty recent window of time. Are you talking about a couple of years and some less than that? Because you were doing them. The first ones were like two years ago-ish. I guess three years ago, so 18, because it's now 2001. Have they all pretty much paid according to business plan? Or have you seen, have you ever seen No,
1: any- no. Um, it's not like a straight line. But some some people will ask like, well, who are the good syndicators and who are the bad ones? And I'm like, you know, one, I'm not gonna throw anybody under the bus. You know, it's just not who I am. Secondly, you know, a year after I invested in all these deals, I had one deal that I was like, oh man, this this deal's in, in trouble. Like, we're not, they're not paying out any distributions, and and I, they bought it. The occupancy was in the you know mid 80s, and they were supposed to get up into the mid 90s, and it's dropped even further, and they're they're in the 70s, and I'm like, oh man, this this deal is in trouble. Well, if I had went and told somebody, hey, my worst deal is from you know, you know, from X. Well, that person is always going to look at that person in that light. Well, a year later, that deal right now is probably one of my best deals. They've turned it around, and now it is in the mid 90s. I've seen other properties in in that exact su- sub market trade for probably. $30, forty thousand dollars more a unit and so i feel like we're in very very good shape there but you know a year earlier i was like hmm i don't know and um uh, so they don't go necessarily in a straight line on our deal things were going like gangbusters and then covid hit you know and all of a sudden now we have people that you know some people are legitimately struggling you know they they with covid they they had their they lost their job and they don't haven't been able to find work, you know, and then we have other tenants that they're just hearing, you don't have to pay rent anymore, you know, like watching TV. And, and so you have a mixed bag, but Hey, it's a challenge. It's an opportunity. You know, when at the end of this, I feel like I can't, you know, I look forward to, you know, getting to the point on the other side and being able to say, you know what, I knew we were going to come into a recession at some point. But I never, ever, ever would have thought that the government would tell us, you know, we can't evict for non-payment and the government wasn't paying us, you know, so we're not getting any as, as owners, we weren't getting any benefit. You know, the tenants could sit squat and, and not pay anything and we're still cashflow positive. And then, you know, but we built in like a, we bought it at six cap. We built in like a seven and a half cap as an exit cap. Well, right now in the Dallas area, things are trading for like, you know, five, five caps. So, you know, we'll mostly, and and interest rates have dropped considerably. So I I would forecast that we'll probably either do a cash out refi in the second half of the year or sell the property in in the second half of the year. So even with those, you know, challenges, it's, it's still... I'm still extremely bullish
0: and optimistic. Good for you. So is that 76 unit one? And um, are you in the process of looking for other properties to acquire now? Or, or are you kind of just spending more of your energy, um, you know, dealing with with that acquisition?
1: Um, good question. So when I repurchased it at the end of 2018, the first quarter, 2019, I just focused on, hey, I never was a lead sponsor and, and asset manager on a, on a property like this. So I wanted to get to understand it. Um, so I took the first quarter, didn't really look for new deals. And then I started looking for new deals. And over the last you know year, year and a half, I've been runner up on three deals. It's, it's very competitive, like you had mentioned earlier. You know, It's probably 15, 20 offers. But in February, I was locked and loaded on a deal, like a 210 unit deal, about an hour south of Dallas. And um, I really thought we were going to win the deal And, um, we didn't, we came in runner up and, um, we came in actually at the same price as the other buying group. And I know the other buying group, but it came out, they, they had less red lines in their agreement than, than we did. And that was kind of the tipping point. But from there, what, what I did was I, you know, kind of, I was not happy, um, to say the least. And, I told my kids, I said, I got like a day or two to feel like this. And then I got, you know, I got to pick myself up and go off to the next one. Well, I I looked up to the big man upstairs and was like, well, what next? And he kind of just put the idea in my head. Well, what about the podcast? I looked up on my phone, you know, podcast conferences. There was one in Orlando the following week. I bought a plane ticket and went down and, um, met a bunch of people down there that none, none of them real estate related, but just a bunch of podcasters and, um, asked, how do I do this thing? Cause I don't know how to do it. And, and so I pivoted and started to focus on, um, launching a podcast and and that's what I did. And then COVID happened and it was a great time to do that. So I launched like mid year, um, last year. And now, right now I'm in, Partnering with some other folks, a uh, big deal in Houston, and um, I'm not the lead sponsor on that, but I'm a general partner in that deal. And I'm questioning whether I want to do more of those partnership opportunities, or do I want to go out and find the deal and and uh, be the lead? I'm not. I'm not sure how how that's going to work going
0: forward. There's a very honest answer for you. It's Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Well, you know, that's about when I started mine too. So we're kind of on parallel paths. Um, well, you just seem, you know, obviously we've not met face to face, but you just come off as a real gentleman and a gentle soul. That's what I get from you. And, um, you know, and I, and I appreciate that. I've exhausted my questions. (laughs) I I don't know if that's possible. Roger,
1: I don't know you that well, but I for some reason I think that you have a ton of questions. You're just gonna have to cut it short based on timing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we can keep going. That's true. That's true. I'm not if I'm nothing else, I'm curious. That is for sure. But you know, hey, I have so much respect for what you did and you know, a lot of people go to those mentoring groups and you know, they, they don't execute and they don't do anything because of the fear, which I get it. So you're a guy that like gets stuff done. And I hope the, hope you have amazing uh, continued success. I, I really do. Well, I appreciate
1: that. And right back at you. And if I could do anything to help you or your listeners, you know, reach out
0: anytime. Okay. How should one get a hold of you?
1: Um, best way probably is is to go to my website, darrenbatchelder.com. That's spelled D-A-R-I-N batchelde com And um, there's a lot of information on there. If you put in your information, then you'll be updated on podcasts and investing tips and, and also future opportunities. I'm also on all social media. So I probably spend the most time on Instagram. I'm at Batch Elder Darren, but I'm also on Facebook and LinkedIn and that's probably the best place to reach me.
0: Got it. Well, Darren, you have a a fantastic rest of the day and, and rest of the week, and it's been great talking to you.
1: Hey, I appreciate it, Roger.
0: Yep. Talk to you soon.